Let's face it, the human heart in the best of people is morally and spiritually sick. Nevertheless, making it healthy isn't as impossible as it may seem. So Solomon wisely told the young people of his day to store up the word in their hearts because it has the power to restructure their thinking and help them to live a godly life in spite of those inner lusts and worldly seductions. Jesus said it's not what goes in a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of it that makes him unclean. In other words, it's not the foods that we eat, but what defiles us before a holy God is the evil that resides in our own depraved hearts. Today we continue in our series highlighting the teachings set forth by Steve Gallagher in his YouTube series for Pure Life, 20 Truths That Helped Me in My Battle with Porn Addiction. Today's lesson is that lust begins in the heart. I'm your host, Jim Lewis. This is Purity for Life. someone tells you the grim news that they have been diagnosed with a serious heart condition, you immediately feel compassion for their sad plight. You know that they are in grave danger of losing their life. The Bible is quite clear that every person on this planet is born with a serious condition, and that is the defect of Adam's sin that afflicts our fallen and deceitful hearts. Ken Larkin discusses the clear teaching of the Scripture on the state of moral depravity that pervades the entire human race and how we need to come to grips with this serious diagnosis of the spiritual condition that affects us all. I'm joined by Ken Larkin today, and Ken is a biblical counselor here at Pure Life. Uh, welcome, Ken. Glad you're here with us today. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here. Ken, you know, we're here today to talk about the human heart and not that pump made of muscle that sits in our chest about that wicked, corrupt, depraved inner core of our being, the heart that every unsaved, every natural man has in its fallen condition. So, Ken, I want you to get us started by uh, just telling us, what does the Scripture say? about the condition of the heart for a man in his natural state without Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, what kind of shape is our heart in? It's not good, Jim. <laughs> in Jeremiah 17, 9, we find the scriptures say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Another version says it's desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Right. So according to this verse, the heart of man is naturally wicked and extremely deceptive. No human being, in fact, can possibly plumb the depths of its wickedness and corruption. I think the average Christian in today's church would probably say that most people are basically good. Yes, we have a few problems, and some of us even have nagging sin problems, but we're we're really good people who just have a few struggles. 
Does the scripture at all support that point of view? Not at all, Jim. Human wisdom, yes, does tell us that man is intrinsically good or basically good, but the Bible, in fact, teaches the exact opposite, that man is by nature evil, intrinsically bad, and not good. Paul mentioned uh, the depravity of man in this way in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says, "...in you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience." among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So going from Paul's second chapter in his Ephesian letter, in our natural state, we are spiritually dead, we are enslaved to the devil, we are morally corrupt, and we are, by our very nature, destined for the wrath and punishment of God. Yeah, that's true. Now, three times in the New Testament, Paul makes mention of a person having a depraved mind. He uses the word in Romans 1 where he says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. And the word means to be tested and to be found worthless. Morally, every man who does not know Christ, who does not have the Holy Spirit, has a morally worthless mind. Talk to me about this condition of moral depravity and what it means to be morally depraved. Theologians talk about man's condition in terms of total depravity, mm -hmm. meaning that as a result of the fall, every part of our nature is corrupted and tainted by sin. Therefore, our natural bent is towards sin and evil. We are bad to the core of our beings. Many scriptures throughout the Bible really support this, but we'll name a few here. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. In the beginning of Psalm 14, we have another depiction. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is anyone who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And going into the New Testament, Paul actually quotes this. He says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who do, does what is good, not even one. And then that classic well-known passage, Romans 3.23, yeah. for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Now, Ken, there are two distinct inferences from the fact that sin resides in our hearts. The first is that sin begins in us at a heart level and it can exist in our thinking long before it finds its way out in our actions and our behaviors. We can just say that for the man who is lost, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, who does not yet have Christ as his Savior, there's very little that he can do to change his sin nature. But for the man who has surrendered to Christ, who has the indwelling Holy Spirit, he can effectively deal with sin at the heart level and the thought level. But tell us, Ken, how does he do that? That's a good question, Jim. We need to saturate our hearts and minds with the Word of God until it changes us from the inside out, transforming our thoughts, attitudes, and affections. And this, in turn, of course, will revolutionize our whole lives, changing our actions and our outward behavior. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.10, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Right. I like another version that says, I have treasured your they, word yeah. in my heart. Yeah. You know, if you value God's word like that and you hide it in your heart, you treasure it above all things, it's going to change you from the inside out for the better, of course. Another scripture, Romans 12.2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, obviously, since we can't do this ourselves, it's very important that we enlist the Lord's help in prayer. Right. We need to pray and ask God to change us, for him to give us a righteous and a pure heart. The cry of our heart should echo the prayer of David in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. And then finally, another practical thing is we need to choose to think right and cast down ungodly thoughts, nipping them in the bud before they have a chance to lodge in our hearts and our minds. Paul said, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, mm -hmm. whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So what you're saying, Ken, is that part of spiritual warfare is attacking the very thoughts in our minds that are contrary to the will of God. When we, as soon as we realize that our thoughts are not godly, we can go after those thoughts and we can take them captive. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. And a great example, our greatest example is our Savior. When he was tempted by the devil with these ungodly suggestions, he countered it with the word of God. He refused to, to re receive the thoughts, and he said, it is written, and he gave the truth from God's word to refute the lies that were coming against him. All right, the second implication to the truth that we are depraved in our heart, depraved in our thinking, is that to solve this problem, we need a Savior. And I want you to tell us how Jesus solves the problem of a depraved heart. Well, it's true. The Bible does tell us we're powerless to help ourselves and change our sinful condition. 
were so bad there's no help without divine intervention. But thank God for Jesus, God did intervene by sending Jesus to save us from our sins and our corrupt nature. In Romans 5, 6 through 10, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And I want to talk for a minute, Jim, about that passage, but I want, to, I want to key in on that last phrase, we shall be saved by his life. We know through the death of Christ on the cross, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in what Jesus has accomplished for us in our place, that we are forgiven of that penalty for sin. But that doesn't necessarily deal with the corrupt nature of our being. Our hearts are morally depraved. But now we're saved by the life of Christ because he actually comes to indwell in our hearts. He gives us a new heart. And now it's the life of Jesus being brought about in our life. The life of Jesus is being manifested in our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what is changing us. Some people have called that it's not a changed life, but an exchanged life. And Paul really emphasized that in Galatians 2.20, where he said, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we accept Christ as our Savior, when we repent of our sins and surrender to his Lordship, he doesn't just forgive us, as wonderful as that is. He imparts to us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and it is the presence of the Holy Spirit who does the work of saving us from the inside out. That's what you're saying. Yeah, and that process we call sanctification. We're becoming progressively more holy. We're becoming like Jesus. And I thought it was interesting. I know the Bible references themselves are not inspired, but it's interesting that Genesis 127 says God created man in his own image. Colossians 127 says Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's the restoration of the image of God in man through that whole process of God living his life through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. That image that was destroyed at the fall yeah. is restored. Well, praise God. A morally corrupt, absolutely depraved heart is what we were born with, but he gives us a new heart by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Ken, for bringing this to our understanding today from the Word of God. Thank you, Jim. Steve Gallagher discovered in his journey out of bondage to sexual sin that he had a deadly heart problem that shaped his whole life. In this segment from his 20 Truths, Pure Life's founder shares his thoughtful insights into what the Bible has to say about the human heart. Not the muscle in your chest that pumps blood throughout your body, but the very core of your soul that determines how you think, feel, 
and make life decisions. Your heart is the very center of your being and lust begins in your heart. Truth number eight, lust begins in the heart. In this segment, I want to talk about the vital role the heart plays in a man's deliverance from habitual sin. Let me begin with some biblical facts about the heart. It's directly mentioned nearly 900 times in Scripture, and it's scattered fairly evenly throughout the five main sections of the Bible. The Pentateuch only mentions the heart about 100 times, but the historical books, the wisdom books, the prophets, and the New Testament each mentions it about 250 times apiece, give or take. The fact that the Lord saw fit to deal with it fairly uniformly in all five sections of the Bible shows the important role it has played throughout the history of mankind. As he told Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he isn't the only one. Satan also sees its significance, which is why he puts such a premium on influencing, clouding, seducing, and winning people's hearts. Just to give you a better idea about its role, consider some of the following examples from Scripture. We're told of a tender heart in 2 Kings 22, a proud heart in 2 Chronicles 26, an unfeeling heart in Psalm 17, a broken and contrite heart in Psalm 51, a humbled heart in 2 Chronicles 32, a broken heart in Psalm 34, a wise and discerning heart in 1 Kings 3, a hard heart in Ephesians 4, and a clean heart in Psalm 51. People are told to rend their hearts in Joel 2, to seek God with all their hearts in Psalm 119, and to pour out their hearts before Him in Psalm 62. We're also told of those who deceive their own hearts in James 1, those who backslide in heart in Proverbs 14, those who spurn reproof in their hearts in Proverbs 5, and those who regard wickedness in their hearts in Psalm 66. Surely what the psalmist said is true, the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. We can see by the way the heart is referred to in these verses that it's primarily the realm of a person's emotions, feelings, affections, motives, and attitudes. Just as the physical heart pumps life-giving blood throughout the entire physiological being, so too the inner heart of man functions as the nucleus of all that goes on in a person's life. In fact, it's the breeding ground for all one's thinking. This is especially true in regards to lust, as Jesus pointed out in Mark 7 when he said, For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts. He then offered a list of sins which included fornication, adultery, and sensuality. With all of that in mind, let's consider Proverbs 4, 19 through 23, as it really deals with the heart. I'm gonna offer it to you in the Knox translation. Sinners are fain to walk on in darkness, surprised by every fall. Hear then and heed, my son, these words of warning. Never lose sight of them. Cherish them in your inmost heart. Let a man master them. They will bring life and healing to his whole being. Use all your watchfulness to keep your heart true. That's the fountain 
once life springs. There are three main thoughts that Solomon touched on here. First is the lifestyle of the ungodly. Theirs is a life of darkness. And unless the Lord is allowed to intervene in it, the godless man is sure to press on deeper and deeper into his own particular type of darkness. He's living and walking in a world of darkness. But what is even worse is that the darkness is inside him. It's a darkness that he cherishes because it's part of his idolatry, the particular form of sin that he loves. Jesus said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. What a horrible and wretched life it is to live without the light of Jesus Christ. The second thought he mentioned is the importance of treasuring the Word of God in the heart. I'll talk more about this in another segment, but let me just say that spending quality time feasting in God's Word is one of the most important means the Lord has given His people to overcome the allurements of this world. We live in a world of 10,000 allurements, which are ever ready to pollute our hearts and to seduce us away from God. We also have a fallen nature, which is full of passions and hungry desires, always looking for opportunities to indulge the carnal things it craves. Let's face it, the human heart in the best of people is morally and spiritually sick. Nevertheless, Making it healthy isn't as impossible as it may seem. So Solomon wisely told the young people of his day to store up the word in their hearts because it has the power to restructure their thinking and help them to live a godly life in spite of those inner lusts and worldly seductions. Lastly, he talked about the need to guard the heart because it plays such a significant role in the direction a person's life has played out. One of the reasons for this is that our sentiments are formed within our hearts, and those sentiments determine what we will pursue in life. So if our hearts are full of the world, then we will feel worldly and desire worldly things. But on the other hand, if our hearts are full of God's word, then we're going to be drawn to the things of God. The Lord has given us a free will to choose which path we will take. So the course of our lives and our eternal destinies really are in our own hands. I guess this is what Joshua had in mind when he said, choose you this day whom you will serve. It's so much better to give your heart to the things of God and to choose the path of godliness. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God promised Israel that he would provide a remedy for their sinful condition by giving them a new heart. Nate Dancer not only describes God's cure, but gives us great hope that this cure is available to all people who will trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and receive the life of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Regeneration and the ongoing work of the Spirit is God's solution to the problem of man's sin. We know you'll be encouraged by this important teaching and his personal testimony. Nate dances with me in the studio today. Nate is 
media outreach director here at Pure Life, and we're going to talk today about the gift of a new heart. Nate, I want to begin our time together by reading scripture, three passages from the prophet Ezekiel. Now, he wrote in chapter 11, and I will give them one heart, put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, and they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And then there's this one from chapter 18. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. We love that verse, don't we? And finally, from chapter 36, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove from you the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. This verse in chapter 36, very much like the one that came earlier in chapter 11. Now, in every one of these passages, the prophet is talking about dealing with the sin and the rebellion of Israel in exile by God giving them the gift of a new heart. Nate, what's your immediate reaction to these wonderful passages of Scripture about the gift of a new heart? Well, I can keep it really short and really simple. This is extremely good news. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way it strikes me, and these kinds of passages have been of tremendous encouragement to me personally, because anyone who begins to understand that sin comes from within yes, and really gets a sight of the fact that it's the heart that is the problem, then the promise of a new heart is really encouraging. Now, before we talk about the gift of a new heart, and we will get there, I want you to share with our listeners how Ezekiel dealt with a particular issue that was brought to him over and over again by the children of Israel. They had a saying, and you're going to share with us what that is. But it was their way of blaming their situation, blaming their problem, and even blaming their own sins on the actions of their fathers before them. How did Ezekiel deal with this issue? Well, he had a word come to him from the Lord, and God said, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. And one thing I would just mention, because I think it's maybe helpful... There is a sense in which 
it was very natural for the children of Israel to think this way for a couple of reasons. Mm-hmm. One, because God had said that he would visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation, and he had also demonstrated that at times the judgment that was that came about because of a per- particular person's sin was postponed and dealt with at a different time, on a different generation. And so it wasn't as if they had no precedent for this, but the problem was, as you mentioned, they were using it to excuse their own guilt and to put an accusing eye toward God, as if he was not righteous or just. And of course, the situation that you're in, in exile, is the children who are born in exile say, we didn't get here. Our father's sin is what brought us here. It's not my fault. It's my father's fault that I do what I do. Now, how does that show up in our culture today? Well, we don't use this proverb ourselves, but the heart of it still shows up in the lives of many people because it is absolutely human nature to think highly of ourselves <laughs> and to think lowly of other people. Right. As if, oh, I would never do this on my own. Something must have happened to me that would cause me to be this way. And so we see this in the whole nature versus nurture debate in the psychological community. Right. We see it in people who are always pointing towards a father wound or a mother wound as if the way that their parents treated them made it impossible for them to turn out any different than they have. And I do want to say that I understand that there is a very real effect upon a person's life when they are mistreated, misunderstood, neglected, abused, abandoned. Those things are very, very real. But as Christians, we have to be very careful that we don't excuse our own sin by blaming someone else. And the most compelling example that I've ever heard was to look at the life of Jesus, because there's no one who's ever been as mistreated, Mm -hmm. as misunderstood, as neglected, as abused as Jesus was, and he was sinless. That's right. And so what it shows is that there is the real possibility of living above our circumstances, living above the way we've been treated. And um, so, yeah, we, we definitely see that in our world today, people constantly wanting to blame someone else for their own sin. Regardless of what happened to you in the past, regardless of what kind of parents you had, what kind of upbringing, what kind of socioeconomic background you have, There comes a point when you have to stand up and take responsibility for your own behavior. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And what is tragic is that many people spend years and years, decades, focusing on someone else 
to excuse their own sin, and they only become more and more bound, more and more enslaved. And so, (laughs) you know, really when we blame someone else, what we're really wanting is we're we're hoping that by blaming someone else we will get out of the situation that we're in. Right. If I can just figure out the root cause which is this person, then I should be free, but what happens is the absolute opposite. The more you blame someone else, the more you excuse yourself, the worse off you become. That's right. The bad news is that your sin is your problem and it's your fault. The good news is that once you take ownership, then God is able to do something about it in your life. Yeah, yeah. It's Isn't it amazing how many times we see that in the residential program, that as soon as a person says, it's my fault, mm-hmm. then the healing and the <laughs> transformation begins to flood That's in. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. Now, God intends to solve our sin problem through giving us a new heart. How does he do that, Nate? Tell me from the New Testament how God gives us a new heart. Well, before I go there, let me mention something about the heart. Because in Scripture, the heart is essentially the very center of the person. Mm -hmm. And so, like I mentioned at the very beginning, when you begin to realize that your heart is the problem, what you are saying is that the very core of my being is the problem. Right. And when that begins to become a reality, well, it can be pretty traumatic for people because they begin to realize that there's no help, there's no hope inside of me because to the very deepest level, that's where the corruption is coming from. There's nothing below that to reform. Right. (laughs) I can't get down there deep enough to really change things around. I need something completely brand new. And that is what God promises to give us. He promises to, to make the change at the deepest part of our being. At the very center, that's where the healing is going to come from, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's right. And that's what regeneration is all about, receiving a very new, supernatural center of our being. And when you study out the scriptures, what you find out is that that is the Holy Spirit. That's what he's promising to give us is the Holy Spirit at the center of our being so that from our inmost being, rivers of living water are springing out of us. Instead of corruption flowing out of us, now there's living water, there's healing, there's spiritual life flowing out from the center of our being. And that's how he solves our sin problem, is by removing the center of that corruption and placing in that, putting in that place spiritual life in the Holy Spirit. Well, Nate, I want you to make this personal for us in just this way. You were raised in the church, came from a Christian family, went to a Christian college. You were active in church. You were a worship leader. You had all the outside trappings of a good Christian kid. You were just hooked on pornography. Yeah. And when you 
came to Pure Life, you experienced a radical conversion. Walk through that experience for us and describe how that happened for you here. Okay. I came to Pure Life high on myself, there was no question about that, thinking I was a great guy and couldn't wait to get through this program in five months and become even greater. And so at about month four, this is going to be the super cliff note version, but <laughs> at about month four, I started to entertain the idea that maybe I wasn't as great a person as I thought I was and that I probably needed something inside to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I just simply asked the Lord, please move into my life, essentially. Now, what I expected was I expected that I would go from great to greatness. But what happened was my spiritual eyes came wide open yes. to the sinfulness of my life, the sinfulness of my heart, the depravity of my character. I could suddenly begin to see God in his holiness and his righteousness, his purity, his love, his humility, and I started to realize that I was the opposite of all of those things. Right. You were none of those. I was none of those. And I didn't know how to become those things. What I, have, what I did at first was I tried. I tried to become more righteous, more holy, pure, humble, all those things. And instead of getting any better, I just it seemed like I was only getting worse and worse and worse as I tried to become those things. And so after about a four or a five month period of, at times, terrible anguish of soul, I finally let everything down, all the facades, all the effort, and I just came to God as simply as I knew, and I said, I have no idea how to even have a relationship with you. Right. And that is when the cross became real to me. That's when I understood why. <laughs> mm -hmm. Why the cross? Because... His nature and my nature were so opposite that there was no possibility of a relationship. There was no possibility of fellowship or communion. And the cross was God's solution. It was his way of saying, I will become what you are so that we can have a relationship and you can become like I am. And when, when he revealed that to me, in just such a simple way, I could, I could finally understand it. And for the first time, I put my faith in that thing that he had done, that that was my answer. And I don't know how to explain it exactly, but when I woke up the next morning, everything was new. That's right. Now, Nate, I think when the average person and even the average Christian in the church today, listens to that story, that sounds like a pretty radical conversion to them. Mm -hmm. Doesn't it also occur to you, like it does to me, that that is the exact experience that God wants every person to have? That should be the normal experience of coming to Christ. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because what was so real to me when I woke up the next morning, was not that 
I was new, but that there was someone new in me. Mm-hmm. And it was as if I could see Jesus inside my soul. I don't know how to explain that, but I knew that a person was there. It wasn't that I became something great. Right. It was that there was a person there that was pure and holy and righteous, and that was completely new for me. I had never experienced anything like that. Regeneration, a new beginning, a new heart, becoming a new creature. It's all described in the New Testament. It's supposed to be the experience for every person who comes to Christ. Yeah. Why does it seem like it's so unusual these days? Mm. You know, the thing that preceded that was the horrifying reality that I was all wrong. Mm-hmm. Not just certain behaviors, but me to the core. Right. All of it was wrong. And I knew that something had to change. I just wasn't sure what it was. And so those months of crying out to God, though that was crucial for me because that experience didn't come because I realized, yeah, I've made some mistakes and who hasn't and I want to go to heaven. That that experience came from a deep yearning to have something other than me in place of me. <laughs> yeah. And that was God's answer was to give me himself as the solution for my sin. Okay, now you not only testify, but you give evidence of the fact that you have been truly converted. God, the Holy Spirit, has invaded your life and taken over. Praise God. But you've also said to me on a few occasions and publicly here at Pure Life on many occasions that when you came to Christ as a new creature, that's when the battle started. That's when life started to get tough. Yeah. Talk about that. Why does the battle start once you're saved? Well, even though God gives us a new heart, mm-hmm. what is still very, very real is indwelling sin and a corrupted nature. So God takes out the center of that corruption and puts inside something new. But that something new is still dwelling within a flesh that is corrupt, that hates righteousness, that hates God, that would be happy to go to hell. And so that's why the battle begins, because now you actually have something that's righteous and holy that wants heaven, that wants purity, that wants holiness, and it is surrounded by a a nature and a flesh that wants exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. So it's like the children of Israel going into the promised land. They took possession of the land, and yet there were all of these enemies that had to be driven out. There were all of these things in that land that stood against the things that the children of Israel were created to stand for. And so that opposition always means war. They're mortal enemies. There is no peace right. between the the new heart and the flesh nature. There can be no peace. And we sh- we're not called to peace. We're called to war. The Bible calls it enmity. 
the flesh hates the spirit, the spirit hates the flesh, and they're always at battle with one another. Mm-hmm. So tell me, you're still in the battle. Yep. What does victory look like? Uh, well, you know, one thing I've been so encouraged from people who have been in the battle a lot longer than me, because I'll tell you, there were days I was so discouraged that I felt like I'm just going to quit. This is too much. I can't handle this. There's so much pride. There's so much um, self-centeredness. There's so much apathy. There's love of the world. There's lust. There's envy. I mean, it's when I became a Christian, that's when I became so even more aware of the sin right. that was in me, not mm-hmm. less aware. Mm-hmm. And I would be very discouraged at times. Just, I can't fight all these enemies, and there's no way I'm going to overcome all this stuff. And I was so encouraged from people who had been in the battle longer than me. Nate, what God is looking for is that you never quit. Never. You never stop identifying those enemies. You never stop putting those things under your feet by an act of your will. I will not let you dominate my life. And you never stop seeking to live the life that is laid out for for us in Scripture. And so victory looks like every single morning in my heart, getting on my face before God, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of mercy, I'm in need of strength, and communing with him and then going out into that day with just a general heart attitude that I want to live for you today, Lord. I'm not going to be satisfied to live self-centeredly, selfishly, sinfully, but my life, I'm going to do war today. I'm going to do battle today. I'm going to grow. I'm going to be I'm going to be l- less focused on myself today than I was yesterday. I'm going to be more eternally minded today than I was yesterday. And each day, just having that kind of heart attitude, and I can say, yeah, I'll say gladly that I have had periods of my life where I was regressing, Mm -hmm. where I did give in, where I did allow my flesh nature to get the upper hand. And God in his mercy has, year after year, drawn me back to himself and said, Nate, I've called you to higher things. (laughs) I've called you to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. And he's just, man, he's been so good to me in that way, to remind me of what the Christian life is really all about and to give me conviction when I need it, to get chasing me when I need it, encourage me when I need it, strengthen me when I need it. He's just done a lot for me in that way. And that is that new heart. That's yeah. that's the way he works. He works in the new heart. The flesh is good for nothing. It is destined to be put off and swallowed up in life. And the heart is the thing that will remain forever. The new heart, living with God in eternity forever. 
As early as Genesis chapter 6, we see the diagnosis. God saw that every imagination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And in the New Testament, Paul writes to Timothy about God's cure. Now flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. An evil heart leads only to misery and death. A pure heart leads to abundance and life. The cure is the work of Jesus Christ, who alone can make the heart pure. He does this miraculous work through the forgiveness of sins secured on the cross and the sanctifying work of the indwelling Holy Spirit available to all who call upon him in repentance and faith. That's the message of the gospel. That's all for today. We'll see you next time on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.